Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. The show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 22, Space Age Hauntings. In this episode, I want to talk about a couple of different stories connected to each other by the space program. These are from both the east and west coasts of the United States. These two stories are quite different from one another, but both express some of the worries that humans faced during the first few decades of the space age. Things like the danger of space travel and what our past might say about our future. While these worries and questions were famously played out in science fiction, from the pages of paperback novels to episodes of The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits, they were also reflected in the supernatural lore that developed around some of the facilities that helped launch us into space. Story 1, Space Launch Complex 6, Vandenberg Air Force Base. Vandenberg Air Force Base is located just north of the California Bight, uh, the point on the coast where the California coast turns from a north-south coast to an east-west course. The Parisameno Chumash, the native people of the region, considered Point Conception and the surrounding area to be the gateway to the afterlife, or at least that's the commonly told local belief. And some members of the Chumash community do in fact believe that to be true, though it is not a universal belief in their region. As the stories go, when Camp Cook, which was the army base that predated Vandenberg Air Force Base, was established in the first half of the 20th century and then later expanded as Vandenberg Air Force Base, members of the Chumash community still present in Santa Barbara County were upset. To make matters worse, when the Air Force initially began construction of Space Launch Complex 6, SLC-6, aka Slick-6, in the 1960s, they allegedly disturbed an archaeological site containing human remains. Construction of the facility began in the 1960s in support of the Manned Orbiting Laboratory, but the facility was mothballed before completion when the MOL program was cancelled. It remained incomplete and unused, which pleased the Air Force brass who saw it as an unneeded facility but irritated members of Congress who saw it as a potentially prestigious part of the nation's space program. Construction resumed in the 1970s in support of the new space shuttle program. At that time, it was found that some elements of the project, including alterations of roads and other facilities, might damage archaeological sites, and so the federal government needed to work with archaeologists from the University of California and consult with the Native American community to avoid or mitigate potential impacts on those sites. At some point, rumors began to circulate that the location had somehow been cursed by members of the local Native American community, and from then onward, the misfortunes of the facility have been blamed on this curse. The construction of the complex was not without problems. Bad welds, exhaust ducts trapping gases, 
extremely bad winds, which, in truth, is normal for this area, and cost overruns all plagued the project. An employee fell to his death while performing work in 1985. Plans to launch the space shuttle from the facility were canceled after the Challenger exploded in 1986, an event that some people lay at the feet of the curse. Several rocket launches were attempted from this facility, but all failed, including a 1995 launch of a communications satellite, the 1997 attempt to launch the Lewis spacecraft, which plummeted back to Earth, and a 1999 satellite launch, which also resulted in the spacecraft falling back to Earth shortly after launch. Rumor holds that, finally, the contractor running the facility on behalf of the Air Force contacted a shaman who performed a ceremony to lift the curse. Ever since then, so the stories go, the facility has run smoothly. In fact, in 2006, with the successful launch of a spy satellite, it appears that the curse has, indeed, been broken. commentary. Okay, there's a lot going on here. First off, this is a classic built-on-an-Indian-burial-ground type of story. Longtime listeners to this podcast have already heard me gripe about how misplaced and downright racist these types of stories are, so I will not subject you to that rant once again here. Regardless, while researching this episode, I could find no evidence of an archaeological site, much less one with burials, at Slick 6. Dwayne Day, a writer at the Space Review, wrote an article in 2006 in which he looked back through the public records pertaining to Slick 6 and found no evidence of an archaeological site. Now, that's not as much of a slam dunk as Mr. Day seems to think, because while it is entirely possible, maybe even likely, that word of the discovery of a substantial archaeological site would make local news, it's important to remember that the Archaeological Resources Protection Act makes the location and other information on archaeological sites located on federal lands confidential in order to reduce the odds of a site being looted. And it also prevents information on the location of archaeological sites being shared except under specific circumstances. Between 2002 and 2006, I had the good fortune to be one of the graduate students of Michael Glassow, the University of California archaeologist who performed the archaeological excavations at Vandenberg Air Force Base back in the 1970s. However, in conversations with him and in his own writings, he focused more on the archaeological sites along the roads that led to the facilities, those roads being constructed or improved in a way that might impact sites, and said and wrote very little on the facility itself. So, it's unclear whether or not he did any work at the launch site itself. I spent the period from 2003 to 2004 as an archaeological intern in the environmental office of Vandenberg Air Force Base, which is in fact where I first heard this story. But the base covers such a large area in such an archaeologically sensitive locale that recalling specific sites is difficult unless I had to do extensive work at the site, and I was never called to do work at Slick 6. And, in truth, even if I had been, I'm bound to follow the same laws regarding protection of archaeological sites mentioned earlier, so I wouldn't be allowed to state in a format such as a podcast where one is. I can simply say, I don't know of any at Slick 6. 
All of this means I can neither confirm nor deny rumors of an archaeological site at Slick 6, though I am skeptical of that. What I can say is that, when I spoke with members of the local Parisimeno Chumash community, including elders, I was often told that the story of the curse was offensive, a way of othering Native Americans, of treating them as frightening, and also dismissing their rights regarding their ancestral lands. The folks I spoke with felt it was nonsense as well as being insulting. Truth be told, I think that the idea of something associated with Native Americans being inherently mystically frightening is racist. It's built on the same rather nasty stereotypes of Native Americans as magical primitives rather than rational moderns. So, okay, I guess I didn't save that rant from you, but I do feel that it is an important point to make anytime any sort of supernatural or mystical problem is blamed on Native Americans. Also, while the curse has been invoked in order to explain the problems experienced by those working at the complex, it is, in fact, completely unnecessary. The initiation and cancellation of programs related to Slick 6 makes perfect sense in the context of the nature of, and changes to, military and space program spending throughout the 1960s to 1980s. So you don't really need a curse to explain that. Likewise, the construction problems are rather typical of the contractors who gained federal projects in the 60s and 70s. Anyone who has ever hired a contractor or a construction crew can tell you about the inherent issues of timetables, cost overruns, etc. In addition, there are unique elements of the weather and environment on the base that make construction difficult to begin with. Even the death of the worker, while unfortunate, is not unusual on large projects. A fact that I've had to reconcile to as I have worked on numerous large projects myself. So you don't need a curse to explain what happened. All of this leads to an interesting question. Why did the story of the curse arise to begin with, and why does it persist? In order to understand that, I think you have to understand when the story originated. As Duane Day points out, the story began in the 1970s, during a time of social change and ethnic empowerment movements. The Native American movement resulted in the organization of tribes into politically vocal groups that began to protest the treatment of Native American archaeological sites as well as the mistreatment of Native American individuals and groups. Also in the 1970s, the growing environmental movement began to focus on the costs of large construction projects in terms of damage to air, water, plants, and wildlife. And, of course, this was also the era of the Vietnam War, a hugely unpopular military endeavor that was itself the focus of much protest. The development of Southern Vandenberg, where Slick 6 is located, became a visible local reminder of all of these things. Day argues that the curse story began as a way to place blame for the problems at the expensive complex. Personally, I suspect that the stories probably began as jokes. Engineers talking about how the place was cursed. But regardless of how they started, the stories probably spread for two reasons. A. Everyone loves a good spooky story and will tend to share it whenever possible. And B. A lot of people hold to the belief that Native American sites are filled with, for lack of a better term, bad mojo. Which is why the old, built on an Indian burial ground trope gets tossed around whenever weird things happen at a particular location. One additional thing interests me here. While the rumors appeared to begin in an era where people were increasingly skeptical of the government and when they were more actively aware of Native Americans as a group calling for and deserving rights, 
It is also the case that there is a history of portraying Native Americans as relics of a wild and mythic past, with progress, in scare quotes, initially farmsteads, and then trains, later automobiles and cities, and eventually spacecraft associated with white Americans descended from northern European peoples. Now again, this is both racist and incorrect, but it is a theme that plays out in a lot of American culture. In this way, showing a marvel of modern space-age engineering being sabotaged by sins committed against an ethnic group typically portrayed as peoples of the past offers a potent symbol contextualizing the reckoning with history that began in the mid-20th century, and with which we are still wrangling. Regardless, the story annoys and offends many of the local Chumash, though I have met a few who think it's funny. This is understandable. How would the average Baptist feel if they heard that a place was haunted because their church's pastor had cursed it? Also, beliefs such as this reinforce the mystical red man stereotype that has, unfortunately, helped to keep many racist beliefs about the native peoples of the Americas alive. So, for these reasons, it upsets many local residents. The contractor who is running Slick Six is rumored to have hired a shaman to lift the curse. Fortunately, my experience as an intern at the base indicated that the base management made efforts to work better with the local Chumash community. It has been years since I have spoken with the folks there about that, but I hope that they are still maintaining that communication and effort at consultation. Incidentally, when I was an intern in the Environmental Conservation Office at Vandenberg, we had, in our library, a paper that had been written by a student at the local community college about the curse. The paper, whose author took the curse very seriously indeed, demonstrated that they were overly reliant on spellcheck and constantly made references to viscous underworld beings. Maybe they intended to talk about vicious underworld beings, but they wrote viscous. So, if the site is cursed, it's okay. The underworld beings who haunt it move really slowly, so you can make your getaway without breaking a sweat. One last thing that I think is worth mentioning. Vandenberg Air Force Base is very close to the town of Lompoc, and many people who work at the base live in Lompoc. I have found over the years that it's not uncommon for place names in or near a location with a supposed Native American supernatural reputation to be said to mean something ominous. When I lived in Lompoc, I met many people who would inform me, in all seriousness, that Lompoc meant Valley of the Dead in the Parisomanio dialect of Chumash. However, from what I could tell during my anthropological studies, the most likely translation of Lompoc is either a place where there is water, or, as one linguist that I found wrote, it might mean stale water. Keep that in mind next time you hear the name of a location as something foreboding in the local Native American language. The actual translation might be much more prosaic. Story 2, Launchpad 34, Kennedy Space Center On January 27, 1967, Module CM-12 was on Launchpad 34 at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Three astronauts, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chafee, were on board. The module was being run through pre-flight tests, not even being launched yet. Nonetheless, one astronaut, 
probably Chafee, said, fire, I smell fire, followed by astronaut White saying, fire in the cockpit. The fire burned hot and fast in the oxygen-rich environment, and soon it was all over. The three astronauts had died of carbon monoxide asphyxia resulting from the fire, and it was unclear the degree to which the burns on their body contributed to their deaths, as at least some of the burning occurred after they had died. These were the first deaths of the U.S. space program, and the crew was posthumously named Apollo 1, the first of the Apollo missions. According to the National Air and Space Museum, quote, After removal of the bodies, NASA impounded everything at Launch Complex 34. On 3rd November, NASA Administrator Webb set up a review board to investigate the matter thoroughly. Engineers at the Manned Spacecraft Center duplicated conditions of the Apollo 204 without the crewmen in the capsule. They reconstructed events, and the investigation on Pad 34 showed that the fire started in or near one of the wire bundles to the left and just in front of Grissom's seat on the left side of the cabin, a spot visible to Chafee. The fire was probably invisible for about five or six seconds until Chafee sounded the alarm. Unquote. The complex still stands though it has not been used in a very long time. NASA used to allow visitors, but it is said to have stopped doing so due to strange occurrences, though you can take a bus tour of the area, indicating that this claim that they've stopped allowing visitors might just be nonsense. Naturally, the place is now the subject of ghost stories. Visitors and security patrols report eerie feelings near the vicinity of the pad, and many have reported hearing agonized screams. There are references to floating apparitions, I assume of the astronauts, though I've not been able to find any specific descriptions, and at least one visitor, who it should be said went looking for ghosts, claims that the patch that he'd left behind mysteriously moved 30 feet after he dropped it and went back to find it. Now, for the record, as someone who routinely puts things down in the field and has to go back to find them, 30 feet is not much of a distance to misremember when you go to pick something back up, so color me unimpressed by this claim. Nonetheless, as a site of deaths related to the program that was generally portrayed as a hopeful and optimistic, this was a national trauma. Commentary. Thankfully, this story is not dripping with the racism inherent in the Slick Six Cursed by Indians story. Rather, it is based on a real-life tragedy that befell several astronauts. The deaths were preventable, although, like the later Challenger and Columbia disasters, the decisions that led to the deaths were not readily acknowledged until too late. NASA disagreed with many of North America Aviation's initial design decisions, North America Aviation being one of the contractors who worked on the spacecraft, requesting changes that, arguably, made the spacecraft more dangerous. As summarized by Wired, quote, Even before tragedy struck, the command module was criticized for a number of potentially hazardous design flaws, including the use of a more combustible 100% oxygen atmosphere in the cockpit, an escape hatch that opened inward instead of outward, faulty wiring and plumbing, and the presence of flammable material. End quote. Regarding the cabin atmosphere and hatch configuration, it was a case of NASA overruling the recommendations of the North American designers. 
North American proposed using a 60 to 40 oxygen nitrogen mixture, but because of fears over decompression sickness and because pure oxygen had been used successfully in earlier space programs, NASA insisted on it being used again. NASA also turned down the suggestion that the hatch open outward and carry explosive bolts in case of an emergency, mainly because a hatch failure in the Mercury program's Friendship 7 capsule had nearly killed Gus Grissom in 1961. So CM-12 was completed as ordered and delivered to Cape Canaveral. It's said that the three astronauts knew that they were looking at a potential death trap. Not long before he died, Grissom plucked a lemon from a tree at his house and told his wife, I'm going to hang it on that spacecraft. Growing up, my father would often tell me about the failed launch and the horror that he and his friends had felt when they heard the news. After a decade of the ongoing, triumphant conquest of space, the dangers inherent in the Enterprise had become frighteningly obvious. This realization shook the public, but it should not have surprised them. Many of the people who witnessed the tragedy were old enough to remember when airplanes were the horribly dangerous province of daredevils and not the routine transportation that they had become by the mid-20th century. And, in the scheme of things, it wasn't that far back in our history when the ocean wasn't a route for pleasure cruises, but rather, the Great Grey Widowmaker. Humans have always been drawn to explore. It is, perhaps, one of the better qualities of our species. However, just as we have had stories of ghost ships for centuries, it shouldn't surprise us that we now have stories of ghost spaceships, or space facilities, even if those ships and facilities are forever grounded. And, should we continue our off-planet exploration, as I hope we do, it is likely only a matter of time before the space-age equivalent of the Flying Dutchman enters our folklore. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky! <laughs>